0: This is Porter Block. I'm a New York-based musician, and I also am a huge music fan. This podcast explores music from every angle, and I'll be talking to people who've made the business of music the focus of their life. Welcome to In In A State.
1: love
0: anymore to love louise goffin is a singer-songwriter producer multi-instrumentalist and self-described badass indoctrinated early into the life of music she opened for jackson brown as at the troubadour when she was 17 years old he eventually produced her debut record which was released in 1979 she is the child of parents carol king and jerry goffin and literally has musical history burned into her DNA. Early childhood growing up in Laurel Canyon in the late 1960s made Louise someone ready to receive music. But she's more than that. She's a product of a lifetime of exploration, of songwriting and storytelling, and she's got talent. That's something that she shares with her parents. Louise has released eight studio albums of her own on major labels ranging from Electra Asylum to Warner Brothers to DreamWorks to independent releases on majority of one her own imprint 2017 finds her releasing new music every eight weeks or so in a cycle of songwriting the first to come out called revenge which was a collaboration i sat down with louise at tom's diner on the upper west side made famous by seinfeld and suzanne vega and we just Talked about what was going on in her life. Present. I want to ask you about the good old days of the. Um,
1: well, can music we talk business. about the bad new days before we talk about <laughs> oh, the yeah, good no, old please. ones? Let's go through the bad new days.
0: <laughs> How does it work? releasing music so frequently you know I mean is it is
1: it's very exhausting any artist listening to this who's done any crowdfunding will know exactly what I'm talking about I've done three pledge campaigns every time I do them I go I'm never doing this again. Because you really just feel like you're living in your own reality show, where everything you do, you're documenting and you're sharing it with your audience. Because the audience wants to see it in motion; they want to see the putting together of the product. Because you know they are you're working directly with your fans. You're, it's not the record company anymore. It's not this person or that person. It it is your fans. They don't want you doing things behind closed doors and suddenly giving them a slick product at the end. They want to see you struggling. Putting it together What you did that day They want behind the scenes Anyway Back to the six to eight weeks Release of, of a single
0: You recorded it Mixed it And released it In three or four months Dave
1: Way who is an amazing engineer and multiple grammy winning producer and a great guy just was a great energy that really supported me and all the songs i had i came into dave the unusual circumstances of actually having a budget because i had this i had what i would call a magical investor come along who i met when i was teaching a songwriting class he was a student and uh, he bought some of my CDs and then started writing me lots of emails, saying, "Why aren't, why don't people know about you? why don't you know why aren't you in the studio? Why aren't you doing this, that and the other thing?" And I shared with him that I had this Dropbox folder filled with songs and he was like, "You get in the studio right now. right now you get in the studio. I'll, I will pay for it. So
0: um, I want you to be able to eat
1: But nowadays, there's no difference when you have... announcements. The attention span will be no different proportionally for 12 hard worked on songs than literally a one minute video. You know, I had a couple of friends Who have been in the business a while And they said, you've got such an amazing record Do not release it as a record And I was like, you're crazy No, this is my white album I've been waiting for this my whole life I'm I'm putting out a gatefold It's practically a triple record And I want to just go against the industry And I'm just going to do what I want Screw it And I just kept getting You don't want to do that Suicide, suicide And I started to see the merit in that So the thing is, is example, Revenge, which I produced. We basically went in my backyard. We're making a quote-unquote demo. I had somebody come over and film us, and I've been doing content for so many years. At this point, I'm a pro. I know you got someone in a room, get some film on it, get as much as you can down when you can. So, I had the forethought. I'm I'm thinking like a record company now. I worked on it long and hard, you know. I mean, I, I just was pretty perfectionist with it, and Peter Chun helped me at stages with the mix. I would send it to him and I said, I can't, I can't get the bass to sit right in this track. I love the mix and I do it really wrongly. Like, pre-mix the vocals. Like, have them on tracks and stems. I, was like, I got the vocals where I want them and it would be a stereo stem. But I got the result I wanted in the end, and was really happy with the mix, and I ended up playing all the instruments on it and just doing it all in my backyard, which was very satisfying to do.
0: Your career has spanned many, many years, and I noticed that, like one thing a lot online, you did a, a version at McCabe's uh, Bridge of Sighs, which is on your first record. You re-released Fifth of July, which was also on that record. Are you consciously kind of adapting stuff to fit the ears of today? Or are they just songs that you want to reinterpret on your own?
1: I haven't really put this into words yet, but I'm going to do it now for the first time. It's really me making an amends to myself. I had a lot of really good songs that I just let die on the vine because I went to record companies and I wanted someone else to give me the green light and tell me it was worthy to do this, that, or the other thing with. 5th of July and Bridge Size are not one of those songs. I mean, 5th well, of July got me a record deal with Warner Brothers. So I have no problem. That song has just been, thank you, 5th of July. It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving, not financially, but it, it's brought a lot of good things. And of Size was written almost as an afterthought to that record. It was all the songs were done. It's like, hey, let's just write one more. And it came out really fast, and it was of Size. I recut of Size 2, which hasn't been released
0: really looking back now at your first album which i guess came out when you were 19, you made when you were 18, would you would you have done anything differently? What was it like working with Jackson Brown and Danny Cochrane and all the everything that happened then? You sort of went through it as a kid. Would you, do you think about it a little differently now or do you do you sort of relish the experience that you went through?
1: Well, i definitely don't relish it. Maybe i should. You know more about my career than anyone I've ever spoken to because I just feel you know
0: (laughs) I guess seventy nine was the first record I wanted to. I'm pushing
1: forty years in a career.
0: Um and it's it's pretty incredible. Wait a minute, that's
1: impossible. I'm I'm not even forty yet. How know uh, how can I
0: you look marvelous. Uh Uh, it was interesting to me that you did such an interesting take at McCabe's with just a stand up bass player, very naked and solo, if you will, versus the track, which is obviously produced to sound like a track would at the time.
1: I can address that. I'm a million miles away from those records. I hardly played on a lot of my records. I mean, I played piano on the first couple, and I played, gu- well, actually, I played guitar on the second record, which has the worst album ever. Artwork ever. I'm floating around on a raft eating Chinese food in the on the back of the second record. Not pretty Chinese food either. Anyway, it's probably very now in retrospect. But what seems revolutionary to you of the way I did it—that's how I've been performing—is is just playing the songs as songs. All of my songs as songs. That has been the journey of reclaiming the songs. There's a song on. Apple on Fire, which isn't online right now only because of my um, lack of time to put it online when I switched from one platform to another. It was a tribute to my father, Jerry Goffin. There's a song on that called I'm Not Rich, But I'm Not Poor that I wrote with my father, Jerry Goffin, when I was 21. had a dream when I slept last night. I think so I have a memory much. that we pitched it to Linda Ronstadt, who passed on it. And it was a very busy time in my life. I was 21, and I was in L.A., and then I moved to England when I was 25, and it's a ballad. So I thought, oh, well, it's, it's not very commercial, and it just sat. sat for years and years and years. He always wanted to demo it. He'd say... Could you go in the studio and cut that song? I'll give you a thousand dollars for demo course. And you know, that was like the last of Those are the days. <laughs> yeah. And I never got round to it, which I felt bad about. After he passed away, I was making the EP and doing some covers. I did one with Joseph Arthur, and it was a song that was really buried that I didn't even know about. I didn't even know about that song till someone posted it the day after he died on YouTube. And then my family and his publisher didn't know the song. They didn't have it. I said, "Can you have a lyric to that song?" No one had a lyric. We were all listening to his demos to try to transcribe what the lyric was. And we were having debates. Is he singing this or is he singing that? Anyway, um, this song, I'm Not Rich But I'm Not Poor, I wrote the music, he wrote the words. I recut it. I just put it up on SoundCloud with all the other songs. And all of a sudden I look and it's got like 80,000 listens. I go, why is this song just going viral for no reason, you know? And it, it just people came across that song and freaked out over it and...
0: And they had no prior knowledge The song
1: never saw the light of day ever anywhere Baby, I'm not rich But I'm not poor That's one thing you know for sure You can keep the white horse You once offered back the love you took from me well that's a good
0: um the new music industry story yeah yeah. Um, by the way you uh had been working for a long time developing a movie about your dad are you still in the process of doing that I
1: dropped the ball on that because I mean I'm I really loved the characters I have I have I have Amazing characters I did what I did With that screenplay The same thing That I did In the music business Early Which is I gave it To this big person And that successful writer and, and that person All hoping That somebody would Show me the light Of how to go And I came there Going Hey I don't really Know what I'm doing But I got this idea I'm passionate about As soon as you Preface anything with Hey I don't really Know what I'm doing It's it's just like Yeah Go work on it And come back In two years So I, I got b- Blocked on it And then I just Got busy with music. I, I actually read some of what I've written recently, and I go, "This is really good." And maybe what I'll do is write it as a book first because I know how to write. That is something I just know how. To, I know how to tell a story. Okay. Yeah, and but in terms of all those things that you need, in like you know, the inciting event and the the formulaic the, thing. Let me
0: ask you this: You never seem at all to have a problem with. The legacy of your parents you got into the music business and they were both obviously quite successful in the music business and so that's probably a hard thing to deal with um is that something that evolved over time when you signed your record deal were you trying to kind of um rebel in a way against what uh, the line- your lineage was which is yeah, undeniable but
1: i i was definitely rebelling um The thing with that is, you know, when you're young, you have so much. I just didn't care what anyone said about any of that. Even by 12, like I knew them that I was going into music and no one could talk me out of it. As far as the legacy and the pressure of that goes, as a more mature person now, I look back and I see how it's impacted me, which really is people's projections. And internally, it was no problem for me. The only problem for me was the high bar. So I remember being in England when I moved there and I was in my mid-20s. I was like 25, 26. I remember this one moment. I'm in the kitchen and I'm going, oh God, I have to be so good at the lyrics and the music. I mean, I'm not going to get away with being anything less than great at both jobs and, and realizing that it was a really high bar that I had set for myself. I was, I think, successfully defiant in that I really went my own way. I I always said no to things that were, you know, oh, how, how cute, she's Carol's daughter and, you know, I, anything with any of that I just ran screaming from and I made my own records Um, and then I got to maturity where I would do things with my mom later which we did a lot of things together just because I felt well it doesn't take away anything from me it's just it's a nice thing
0: Let's talk about that for a minute you did you wrote I guess three songs and produced her Christmas record which was nominated for a Grammy Yes Um, What was that like was that the first formal kind of Uh, Working experience that you had had with her
1: I don't know if it was the first But it was It was the first time I was in a producer role Well another thing about being A woman in this business is I had been doing what people would define As producing so many years But I never owned it Or got paid for it I was like the shadow producer and one of my favorite things that I remember is Nathaniel Kunkel, who's the, you know, wonderful engineer, son of Russell Kunkel. Nathaniel's really talented and has got an amazing set of ears, and he was brought up by George Massenberg, showed him the rope. So he did the first couple of records with me. He, he engineered, and he worked with me on Carol's record. I call her Carol when I'm in the producer role, by the way. It's just, I have to. I can't push the talk back mic and go, Mom. I go, Carol? One day Nathaniel and I were eating much somewhere like this And he said, you know, we're fish, we don't know the water we're swimming in And I go, what do you mean? He says, well, a fish is always in water It doesn't really know it's in water because it's always in water. But if you're not a fish, you go, oh, how does that fish swim in that water? And that describes perfectly how I was my whole life. I'm a fish. She's been swimming in this water of, you know, the lineage and the creativity and being around artistic people and studios and music. So when I get in the studio, I'd be doing things that would be called producing by any other standard. But because I'm just a fish swimming... It doesn't feel like I'm doing anything different than breathing. So I'm not going, hey, I'm producing. I didn't own that for years. Right. So by the time I got to doing my mother's record, I was scared shitless because I am I remember driving a record one, pulling in driveway, and Nico Boas, also amazing. You know, Dean Parks is there. My mother's there. Russ Kunkel's there. Bob Glob is there. And, and I felt they've seen me my whole life, and I'm producing this record. I'm just praying in the car before it. Like Just please don't say anything stupid And I went in there And I knew what to do Nico had the sounds covered And he was amazing at that But I I was hearing things Like I heard one of the songs is not in the right key for her voice she's going to sound better a half tone higher or a half tone lower. I can't remember what it was. And I heard that Dean Parks was on the left in an isolation room and I he wasn't hearing himself. Nico was looking at all the other musicians and I, you know, so I was talking to Dean. I said, Nico, Dean can't hear himself. And then I heard Russ off mic say to someone that he thought the BPM should be a little faster on the song. But he didn't tell us. But I heard him say it. And I'm on the talkback going, Russ, what do you think the tempo should be on this song? He's going, what Well, you know, I think we could knock it up a bit So that was the first time I really owned that I was a producer And it was a beautiful moment because Nico looked at me He just turned to the right where I was standing at the console And he goes, Wheezy, you is a producer And that to me was my christening in a way
0: Played and went on the road with Tears for Fears. Did you did you like that? Did you like the life of a touring musician? Or were you just sort of swimming in the water like you you normally... Was that another...
1: I, I loved it. I mean, that was a huge gig for me. When I saw Chrissy Heim playing live or Wendy Melvoin, I'd be like, I want to do that, you know? I want to play guitar in a rock band on stage. You know, I, I was... Long an artist by then, but I thought I want to just be in someone's band playing guitar. And then I had that opportunity. Uh, Jeff Trot—he had been in the Tears for Fears touring band, and then he got the gig with Sheryl Crow. And I looked at him and I said, "Who's doing your gig with Tears for Fears?" He goes, "I don't know." And I just—I just ran with it fast. It was—it was, I think, a total of four months. We—we we started off. In March At Real World Studios Rehearsing We did a month In Europe A month In America And then we did A long stint In Brazil And I loved All of it Until Brazil When I when we went To Brazil In Sao Paulo I had like a 103 temperature And I think I, I hit my mark After three months I felt like I wasn't Living my life anymore I was just Playing the same thing Over And I thought Okay It's fun playing In a rock band But I gotta get Back to my life And it's interesting as soon as I got back, started demoing the songs for Sometimes a Circle and got a record deal with DreamWorks, so...
0: Was that, were you one of the first artists on the label? I was one of
1: the last artists on that label. Last on
0: the... Is there anything about that record you want to tell, like any songs you want to y- Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I, at the time I thought it was the best record I'd ever made. I thought it was the first record that sounded like a record I wanted to make. My previous records, I could never get the sound in my head translated onto when there was a disc to call it a disc. I had Swain and Jolly, which, you know, producing This Is The Place before that, now if I tell people I work with Swain and Jolly, they're like, whoa! you know, That's amazing. You work with Swain and Jolly? But at the time, yeah, I knew so many amazing musicians in New York. Uh, I'd been playing with incredible musicians here, and I pissed them all off because I went to England, and I got a record deal without them, and then I made this record that had no mojo in the band. It was programmed, it was kind of light pop a feels like a just for perfection. I just didn't step in I didn't own my power and I didn't do what I knew how to do I was still playing the game of record companies and managers do it this way, do it that way. So when Sometimes the Circle came out, Greg Wells did a great job. Some of the songs we used, my demos as the bedrock for things. It was the first record I made that thought, oh, finally, if I die tomorrow, at least I made one record I could say I was happy with.
0: You've collaborated, as you said, with Joseph Arthur. Um, I saw a bunch of duets. Uh, with Jacob Dylan. Um, but if there were an artist I mean, and you've obviously met so many great Artists and musicians But if there was someone just To get kind of heady about it That you haven't collaborated with Alive or dead, but that you could Either to write Joan Jett, Joan Jett.
1: I actually, yeah, I spoke to her manager A bunch of times I, was, I wanted her to sing on one of the songs Which there's a lot of duets That haven't come out yet There's a duet with Rufus Wainwright Who mm. I love Um, Chris Difford of Squeeze.
0: All right, while you're eating, so these are... I'm putting a fictitious timer on the table, and these are just sort of choices. We're going to see if this segment works. Um, And you don't get to think about it. You just have to say. Bacon, egg, and cheese... Or avocado toast?
1: Avocado gluten-free toast.
0: Go-Go's or Bananarama?
1: Go-Go's.
0: Sasha Obama or Ivanka Trump? Sasha. Is 10 minutes in the shower too much or too little? Too little. Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity? No comment. Bee Gees or Air Supply? Bee Gees. 5 o'clock jog or cocktail? Cocktail. Yanni or Kenny G? No comment. Kim, Chloe or Courtney?
1: No comment <laughs> Marsha,
0: Jan, Peter, or Greg
1: Is this a Partridge family question? <laughs> That's
0: a Brady Bunch
1: Oh, Brady Bunch, I meant uh, You don't have to Marcia. choose Marsha, Marsha, Marsha
0: Did OJ do it?
1: I don't know if I want to like get into that territory It's kind of gruesome
0: Do you think that Elvis is alive and out there somewhere? Hell no Do you believe in aliens from outer space? Yes <laughs> Any last words for the kids?
1: Hey kids, here's the thing. You have a gut that tells you things all the time. When you have that signal that tells you things, listen to it every time. It always knows. If something doesn't feel right, it's not right. Take care of yourself. Believe in yourself. You can be anything you want to be. Be safe, love yourself, love your family. You'll do great.
0: Louise Goffin is quite a badass. In fact, she's a doll. I want to thank her for coming down to Tom's Diner. Later uh, that night, I got a chance to go down to Rockwood Music Hall on the Lower East Side and check out her solo act, which is basically just her and electric guitar and piano. Her delivery and her arrangements, her solo voice, the wigged-out electric guitar, it all really outstripped the recordings that I had heard of these songs. Because when a piece of writing is so solid, the idea, the construct, is very difficult to ruin. And the simpler the arrangement, sometimes the more emotional the performance. Overall, frankly, I was blown away. I want to thank Louise for letting me see the show and coming down and talking to us. And thank you all for listening to In A State and supporting what we do here. This is Porter Block. I'm a singer-songwriter, and you can listen to my stuff on iTunes and Spotify. And you can find us at teammensch.com. And once again, if you're listening to this, you're in a state.